we have a very free and free-floating and open style of worship here. Uh, we do so not because that's the only way to worship. We do not believe that. It's just one that we've chosen, one that we uh, prefer here. And uh, you never know what's going to happen uh, from time to time the unexpected uh, curse, and we've learned to expect that. But imagine, if you will, someone standing at some point in our service where it's appropriate, a tall, rather dignified-looking gentleman with iron-gray hair and a double-breasted blue blazer, gray flannel slacks, Gucci loafers. And he begins to speak to us in those round notes that Britishers are famous for in this beautiful, cultured British accent and uh, introduce himself as Dr. John Smith from Sheffield, England, and that he just, uh, within the last couple of years, picked up a Ph.D. from Oxford University in New Testament, and uh, he's here in town to begin a, a series of small group Bible studies to which any of us are invited, and many of us, because we uh, love the scriptures and we want to... Uh, hear more about them, would uh, would come, and we'd find a large uh, home, well-appointed, very warm, very hospitable, uh, with the appearance of, of real love and hospitality there, and uh, would find uh, that this man is a very adept uh, discussion leader, and we just have a great time discussing the scriptures together, find that he's very learned, very knowledgeable, very helpful. But after two or three weeks... He uh, tells us uh, one night that he has a secret that he'd like to pass on. He said, a few uh, years ago, I was in my bedroom on my knees praying over the scriptures. When uh, the Lord appeared to me at the foot of the bed, he appeared as an angel of light. And uh, he told me that I had been appointed as his apostle in the last days. And that uh, primarily my task was to reconstitute the church on another basis because... The church for 1,900 years had been wrong about the Apostle Paul. He was not an apostle. He was not in the same league as the other uh, apostles of Christ. He did not have their authority. He was, uh, he was a bogus prophet. And therefore, we should expunge all of his writings from the New Testament. And he tells us that he got this directly from the mouth of the Lord. Now, some of us might say, uh, Wow. I didn't know that. Uh, Others uh, would not, I hope. But there might be some people who would take him seriously and take a razor blade and cut all the Pauline sections out of the New Testament and uh, believe that what he had to tell us was true. Now, that's the sort of thing that the Apostle Paul is contending with in the last four chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians. Some men came from some place. We don't know who they were or where they came from, but they were very learned men who came and told the church in Corinth that the Apostle Paul was not one of the regulars. He was not commissioned by the Lord Jesus as the rest of the apostles had. He did not have their authority, and they therefore should not listen to him. And his authority in the church in Corinth was being undermined. Paul describes them... Ironically, as super apostles, he uses that term twice in the in the last four chapters of Second Corinthians. Super in the sense that they considered themselves superlative apostles. They had uh, a measure of authority that the other apostles did not uh, did not have. But Paul says they're not Christians. 
in chapter 11, he describes them as, as uh, not angels of light, but demons masquerading as angels of light. And they were creating a, a frightful mess in the church in Corinth. And, and Paul could see it coming. And so he's forced into something that he did not want to do. He has to talk about himself. And that was embarrassing to Paul. He didn't like to do that. Didn't like to be made over. Didn't like to be uh, promoted. And he wasn't self-promoting. He, he says, hey, you're forcing me to do something I don't want to do. I have to boast about the authority that I have in Christ. And, and, he, and he, he shrank from that. But nevertheless, it was necessary. Because if he did not accept and insist upon his position as an apostle of Christ, the, the church, the foundations of the church in Corinth would crumble. And so it was necessary for him to assert the unique authority that he had as an apostle. Now that's what he's doing in these final chapters. Now let's begin reading with uh, verse 7. Uh, I am having a terrible time reading my text this morning. I stumbled through it all morning because it's, it's so dark. I can't see up here. So when I walk over here to the window, uh, it's not for effect. It's so I can see. <laughs> I get some light in this place. I told the first uh, first hour that uh, story I heard a few years ago about a, a deacon who came to the pastor and said, we need a chandelier for the church. And the pastor said, nah. He said, in the first place, nobody can spell it. And in the second place, nobody around here knows how to play one of those things. <laughs> and uh, thirdly, he says, what we need in this place is some light. <laughs> I agree. Paul says in verse 7, you're looking at the surface of things. You're, you're looking superficially at things, which is a problem with all of us. It's a mark of immaturity to not think seriously and profoundly about things. Uh, you've all heard your children do, you've heard them apologize or explain why they got into a bad situation. Their explanation very often is, I didn't think. And we have to agree that you just didn't think. And uh, this was the problem at Corinth. These people were thinking very superficially about things. Paul says you need to think on a profounder level. You need to take seriously things as they are around you and, th and think them through. You're naive as you're looking at things superficially. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he for even if I boast somewhat about the authority that the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Paul says there are two things that you ought to think about. The first is my authority as an apostle. The second, as we'll see in the paragraph that follows, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, was his itinerary. Those two issues were most important, and there were things that the church in Corinth ought to think through. His authority and the special itinerary that the Lord had given to him. Now Paul says, I'm going to have to boast, he says, about my authority. They say, these super apostles say, they belong to Christ, so do I. Now he's not saying, uh, they're Christians and so am I. Verse 8 explains verse 7. Paul was of Christ in a special sense. He had a special authority because he had been commissioned by the risen Lord. As an apostle, he had been sent out by Jesus with the authority of Jesus himself. When Paul taught, when he preached, when he wrote, 
The words had the same authority as, as Jesus' words. That's what an apostle is. Our word apostle is a transliteration of the Greek term apostello, or the, that's the verb form, which means to send out. Apostolos is the noun, to send out. But it's someone sent out by Jesus himself with Jesus' authority. Paul had unique authority. There's no one like Paul and the other apostles today. There are no apostles any longer. The only apostles are those that were commissioned by Jesus himself and sent out to preach in his name. You know the story. Paul is on his way up to Damascus with letters giving him authority to imprison Christians there. On the way, he was stopped. He was arrested by the risen Lord who commissioned him as his apostle to the Gentiles. He said, there is no end to the suffering that you're going to experience as a result of this commission. Nevertheless, I'm sending you out as my special emissary to the Gentiles with the same authority that I've given to the other apostles. In the book of Galatians, uh, Paul argues in the same way. If you'll turn with me to chapter 1 of that book, the churches in Galatia were struggling with much the same problem as those in Corinth. So men had come to Asia Minor and had uh, told them that Paul was not an apostle, not in league with the other apostles. Paul says in verse 11, Galatians 1.11, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So I didn't come through a man. It came directly to Paul from Jesus. And then he explains in verses 13 and following that in his pre-conversion days, he could not have learned from the other apostles because he was in opposition to them. And then he tells us uh, in verse 17 that after his conversion, he did not consult with any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, not to learn from him, but to get to know the man, and stayed with him only 15 days, not long enough to formulate the theological system that Paul had by this time. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia, up to Tarsus, his hometown. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, that is, the first church, the church in Jerusalem, that was pastored largely at this time by the apostles. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith, faith he once sought to destroy. Paul's point is he didn't learn anything from the apostles. He didn't get his, his doctrine by listening to their instruction. He got it directly from Jesus. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. And then he goes on to, to tell the Corinthians about the things that occurred in the upper room in the Last Supper with Jesus and his apostles, which Paul could not have known about unless Jesus himself told him. You can imagine the effect it would have had on the apostles to have Paul reveal what went on in that closed session with the apostles. He knew as much as they did. And as he goes on in chapter 2 to tell us, when he came back to, uh, to Jerusalem, he didn't come to consult with the apostles or to get their approval or to learn from them. He came to, to deliver to them the gospel that he was preaching to the Gentiles, and they put their stamp of approval on it. You see what Paul is saying? He, his authority is unique. It's just like the other apostles, and he argues strongly for it. 
in, in these final chapters of Second Corinthians. He wanted them to understand that when he spoke, it was as though the Lord himself spoke. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, When you received my word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God that's at work among you. That's the phrase that's used for the Old Testament scriptures. He equated his message with the message of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, in the Old Testament. See, very self-conscious of his authority. But it's a unique authority. No one else had that kind of authority. Now, what that says to us now is that we need to take his word seriously and, and we, need to, uh, we need to check out any other system of thought by what the apostles teach us, what Paul and the other writers of Scripture tell us. It's not that the New Testament contains all the truth there is in the world. It doesn't. But it contains truth, as, as Dr. Schaefer used to say, true truth. This is the final word. And therefore, we ought to read widely in other Christian books, and we ought to read widely in secular literature, but, but we ought to screen everything through the word of the apostles. And if we come across something that's contrary to that word, then we know it's not true. It becomes the standard by which we judge everything. It's our ultimate authority. It's why we teach the scriptures, because they tell us the truth, you see. Now, interestingly enough, Paul says that this authority, let's go back to 2 Corinthians again, which was given to him, was given to build up. Even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than pulling you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I want to say something about authority because I think particularly we men misunderstand that concept. Authority is the capacity to lead and direct. And uh, this, the assumption is that uh, there will be obedience on the part of those over whom we have authority. Now, there are given to us by Scripture... Am I still on? There are given to us by Scripture some specific spheres of authority in which men and women can rule. Uh, in, in the business world, for example, authority is given to employers over employees, whether they are men or women, employers. They have authority to rule. And obedience is expected. Paul makes that clear in his passages about slaves and, and masters. Parents are given authority over children. Husbands are given authority over wives. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a very popular thing to say anymore. But nevertheless, it's spelled out in Scripture. The Bible does not say that men have authority over all women. We need to make that clear. But in the home, it's the, it's the husband who's given the ultimate responsibility for leadership and authority. But authority is always wielded in the way in which Paul uses it. It's for building up and not for tearing down. It's to help the other person grow. It's not for feathering our, our nest. It's not for our own well-being. It's designed to produce good in the life of the other. It's to build up and not to tear down. A lot of us men just do not understand that. We, you know, we read those passages in First Peter 3 and Ephesians 4 about uh, leadership in the home. And boy, we like that a lot because that lets us throw our weight around and get what we want. We have, a, you know, some toy we want to buy and it's very expensive and... Uh, because we are the head of the home, we make the decision, and it's all for us. And, and we, we uh, use the Bible like a whip on our wives, obey, because it says so. We miss the whole point. The purpose of leadership 
is first of all servanthood, as, as Paul will point out in our studies in Second Corinthians. Leadership is not lordship, not stalking about demanding that everyone be subservient to us or demanding that they obey us. It's serving. Jesus said the, the, the Gentiles determine leadership by the number of people they, they, they are over. The number of people under them. Haven't you heard men say that? I have 50 men working for me. That's the measure of, of a man's management and leadership ability. Jesus says, it's all right in the world of the Gentiles. It's all right out there. But it's different for you. The issue is how many do you serve, not how many serve you. And do you use that authority to build up and to, to create growth? Or do you use it? For selfish reasons, to tear down, to exploit, to manipulate, to use the other person and thus harm them and tear them down for your own good. See? Paul said he never did that. He didn't come on strong. He was gentle and he was meek like the Lord Jesus. And though he had ultimate authority, he had the same authority that Jesus Christ had. He didn't use it like a sledgehammer on other people. He served them and he sought the best for them. Now, that's what Paul means when he says, I, I have authority, but it's given to build up rather than pull you down. Now, in, in verse 9, he goes on to describe another characteristic of his, of his authority. I, I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. He uses a word here. It's translated frighten in my text. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. It means to scare somebody out of your wits. And uh, what Paul is saying is, I didn't come on strong. Didn't mean to in my letter not some artificial attempt to try to terrorize you but uh, he says some will say that I did his letters are weighty and forceful but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent we will be in our actions when we are present you, you understand what Paul is saying he had authority, had the same authority as, as our Lord Jesus, but if you looked at him, you would never have known it. He was meek, that is, he was non-defensive and non-assertive, non-demanding, undemanding, and he was gentle and kindly and loving, patient with people, and uh, the folks that he the super apostles took his meekness to be weakness and his patience to be indecisiveness and they just didn't understand why he didn't crack the whip. If he had all of this authority, then he needed to use it. Paul said, I just never ran roughshod over anyone and I have to grant the fact that my presence is not too impressive and my speech is not too impressive. Nevertheless, the power is there. He says, what you read in my letters, what strikes you so forcefully in my letters, you'll find in my presence when I come. Okay. It's a reminder to all of us, I think, that power does not reside in externals. It's, we're not powerful because we dress the right way or we have the right kind of education or we have the right sort of personality and we come across as witty and bright and, and forceful. There's nothing wrong with education. If you can get one, get one. But don't depend on it. And don't be proud of it. The only problem with an education is, is intellectual pride. We, we want everyone to know about uh, our background and our education and our intellect. Or we depend on it. 
Same is true of clothing. There's nothing wrong with dressing appropriately. As a matter of fact, I think it's it's wrong for us to Christian, as Christians to dress inappropriately because it attracts attention to us. I and mean, We don't want to do that. We ought to dress for whatever situation we're in so we can blend in. But there's no power in it. Don't depend on it. If you're witty and, and, and bright and clever in conversation, use it. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't hide it. It's false humility to do so. But don't depend on it. That's what Paul is saying. There's no power in it. Paul didn't come across as an authoritative personality, but it was there whenever Paul spoke, whenever he taught. It had an impact upon people because God was working through Paul to touch the lives of people. Now, that's Paul's first argument. I want you to think about that. Think seriously about it. I have the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Though I don't overwhelm people with my personality, I don't particularly come on strong and gentle and and, and kind and patient with people and tolerant with their, their weaknesses. Nevertheless, the authority is there. Think about that, he said. You know it's true. You saw my life. You saw the effect of it in the church in Corinth. Now he turns to another issue. <clears throat> he says in verse 12, We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. That's just another way of saying they're very foolish if they make their standard of comparison what other people think. If we're counting upon others to approve us and to recognize us and to evaluate us properly, and then, then we're not wise, he says. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will continue our boasting to the field God has assigned to us a field that reaches even to you. Uh, my translation translates as though it's an agricultural metaphor that, it's, that he's using, but it's not. It's a sports metaphor. He's talking about the, the lane that's assigned to a runner. He says, I was assigned a lane, and it's a lane that runs right to you. We're not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did, not get as far as you, uh, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, as the church begins to stabilize, our area of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in another man's territory. See what Paul is saying? Paul, I just run my lane. That's all. I run the lane that's assigned to me. And uh, Paul knew that his lane was to... To evangelize the Gentile world, he was uh, like those on the uh, spaceship Enterprise to go where no one had gone before, to plant churches where none existed. He says, I'm not going to boast in another man's work. I'm going to run my lane, which took me to Corinth. And hopefully as that church begins to get it together and become more stable, then I can go on to the regions beyond to the west, to Rome and, and to Spain, as we know he was eventually able to do. Paul says, that's my lane. I just run down my assigned lane. I don't want to run anybody else's lane. Uh, when I was in high school, I used to run hurdles. I ran uh, high hurdles and low hurdles. And uh, the... Uh, climax of the season was what they call the Border Olympics down in Laredo, Texas. And all the schoolboy uh, track teams would gather down at Laredo for this big uh, meet. And uh, I, uh, I don't know 
the distance that high school uh, athletes run today. It was 180 yards then for the lows. And they had a, uh, the straightaway was too short. So they, they had the last two hurdles in the flight on the curve. And I had never run hurdles on a curve before. They didn't have intermediate hurdles in high school back then. That's 35 years ago. And uh, I'd, I'd never run them on a curve. I didn't know what to do. So I t- took a couple of practice uh, flights, and then they started the race. It was a preliminary heat. And uh, I started into the ninth hurdle, in between the eighth and the ninth hurdle, and it was on a curve. And the man who was running, I was on the outside, on the outside curve uh, lane. And the man that was right to my left was about a step or two in front of me. And he couldn't stay on the inside of his lane, and so he went wide, which forced me to go wide. And uh, I took a couple of little choppy steps, and I had the wrong leg going into the hurdle. I took off on my right leg, and I knew I was going to hit the hurdle. And so I did what any uh, self-preserving individual would do. I ran around the hurdle. (laughs) I ran across the curb, down the grass, and around the other side. And, of course... When you run around a hurdle, you gain ground on guys that are going over the hurdle. (laughs) And what I had planned to do was just run around the hurdle and stop. But uh, glory of glories, I was ahead. (laughs) Now, this is my hour. And uh, so I just went uh, uh, stoking right on down the track. And I got to the next hurdle, and I was still on the wrong foot, so I ran around that one, too. Well, everybody did just what you're doing. They just died laughing. Guys were all over the infield holding their sides laughing. And Coach Hightower, who was my high school coach, came over and put his arm around me, and he said, uh, Spider, he said. That's what, that, that was my nickname in high school because I had such skinny legs. Uh, <laughs> Spider, he said, uh, that was a magnificent effort, but you've got to run in the lane. <clears throat> Uh, and that's what Paul is trying to, to tell us. You know, we can be up to all sorts of things, but our efforts are, are wasted unless we run in the lane that's assigned to us. Oh, do we ever need to learn that? Everyone has a lane to run in. There's a conversation that John records in his gospel, a time when Jesus was talking to John and Peter, and the Lord had to tell Peter that, that some tough things lay ahead, that... He was going to lose his life for Christ's sake. And Peter pointed to John. He said, what about this fellow? And Jesus said, what's that to you? Follow me. That was the the lane that was assigned to Peter. John had another lane that was assigned to him. Paul makes much of this idea of running a course, running in in the assigned lane in other of his books. In in Acts 20, in, in a message that he gave to the Ephesian elders, in, in, in the city, or just right outside the city of Ephesus. He says to them, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that I know that pain and affliction and imprisonment await me. Nevertheless, he says, I want to run my course in the ministry which the Lord has assigned to me. Paul said, I don't know what's going to happen to me in Jerusalem. I know I'm to be a, a missionary to the Gentiles, and it's my urge to go west. I have plans to go back to Jerusalem for, for Passover, but I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I just want to run the course that the Lord has assigned to me. And we know, 
in retrospect, what, what actually happened. Paul got to Jerusalem and he started a riot and they, they tried to string him up. And if it were not for the goodness of a Roman officer, they would have torn him limb from limb. And uh, the, the officer locked him up so that he, would, he wouldn't be killed. And he was sent down to Caesarea to get, uh, get away from another plot on his life. And he was down there for several months languishing in prison. And then he was sent at Roman expense, first class, to the city of Rome. Uh, shipwrecked on the way, but Paul had learned to expect that. And uh, he arrived in Rome, and, and the Roman uh, officials put him, put him up in an apartment of his own where he was free to give witness to those who, who came to talk to him and to the Roman soldiers that were with him. I've commented before on the fact that he was chained to, to the palace guard. These were the elite of the empire, the choice picked young men, the kingmakers in later years, usually senators and legislators in the Roman Empire. And he was able to lead one after another of these men to Christ. He refers to them as the household of faith in, how, in Caesar's household in the book of Philippians. Now, who could plan that? I mean, you, you couldn't have figured uh, that scheme uh, out to evangelize the Roman Empire if your life depended on it. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I'm just going to run the race that the Lord has assigned to me. The Lord got him to the right place at the right time. And looking back in 2 Timothy, he says, I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. So he could see in retrospect what his course was. He couldn't see it in prospect. He didn't have the foggiest idea what the Lord had for him. And neither do we. Neither do we. All we can do is get out of bed in the morning and say, Lord, I want today to run in the lane that you've assigned to me. I'm not going to covet anyone else's lane. I'm not going to be discontented because I have this lane and not another lane. I'm going to run the race that you've assigned to me. And maybe it's uh, being a homemaker and a mother and taking care of children and washing dishes and uh, washing clothes and cleaning house, and you get you graduated from college, uh, magna cum laude, and here you are changing diapers. That's the most exciting thing you do all day. But that's the lane that's been assigned to you to run for today. See, some of you men are involved in in vocations that are demeaning and dehumanizing, and uh, you have employers that don't understand. And you're underpaid for the amount of flack that you have to take on your particular job. But that's the lane that's been assigned to you. And that's not to say that you may not change lanes later on. But for right now, that's the lane. And Paul says, that's the story of my life. I just get up out of bed every morning. I say, okay, I'm, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, I'm going to run today in the lane that's assigned to me. And he started out through the day. God got him to the right place at the right time. He got him to Corinth. And, and as we know from subsequent history, the church in Corinth became stable enough that he was able to go on to Rome and then eventually on to Spain, as far as we know, the western extremities of, of the civilized world at, at that time. He evangelized where no one had evangelized before. You see, Paul is not discontented with his lot. That's what disqualifies us. It's not the, the menial task that we have. What disqualifies us is our discontent, our unwillingness to run the lane that's assigned to us. Paul says, I didn't do that. I stuck to the task. It brought me to Corinth. 
I was the first one to get there. I planted the church there. And if you think deeply, you understand that when I came, I came at the direction of and under the authority of Jesus Christ. And that leads him to his final note in verse 17. But let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the man who commends himself who is approved, but the man whom the Lord commends. It's a quotation from uh, Jeremiah 9. The full quotation goes something like this. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the strong man glory in his strength. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. But let him glory in this, that he understands and he knows me. That I am a loving, he uses the word for covenant love, a loving, just, and righteous God. And that in these things I delight. See what he's saying? Paul says the the focus of my life has been on understanding and knowing God and realizing his goodness to me, his justice and his love and his mercy and his patience and learning from him to reflect the same attributes because what pleases God, what causes delight in him is not that we're known or recognized or commended by others but that we faithfully do what God has called us to do. I got a call this last week from a friend of mine, a student that I knew years ago. Mark Yelderman is his name, and he's now teaching anesthesiology in a medical school on the west coast of uh, California. And uh, I haven't talked to him for about 15 years. He was really a voice out of the past. And he called because he was thinking about leaving the medical profession and going to seminary because, as he said, there's this discontent with my life. I feel like I'm not doing anything worthwhile. I want to get on with things so that that I can have a greater impact upon my world with, with my life. And I, I said to him what I think Paul is saying to us. No, no, no. Stay right where you are. Stay in the lane that's assigned to you. Focus on God. And on knowing Him. And understanding Him. And loving Him. And worshiping Him. And living out His life wherever we go. Because that pleases God. And it may be a year, two years, five years, ten years... God will call Mark out of the medical profession to seminary. I don't know. But I I, I know that it will be a a smooth and easy transition and it will be obvious and it won't involve this kind of heart-wrenching decision. See, it's up to God to get us to the right place at the right time if we just focus on Him. That's what He's saying. Because don't you realize that God loves you and He wants to use you? He's just. He's righteous. He's loving, Jeremiah says. Think about that. Focus on that. George MacDonald says that there is a doctrine fiercely held by some, practically held by most, that God is a demon. We think he's out to get us. He's going to make our life miserable. He's not going to ever let us use our gifts. He's going to stick us in some little forgotten place and no one will ever hear of us again and won't have any influence on our world. But he's not that way at all. Bill Bright used to talk about uh, giving our heart to God and thinking that he's like a father who, when his child comes to him and and says, Father, I love you, I want to serve you, and his father says, Ah, good, I've been waiting for this all my life. Go stand in the corner at spinach three times a day. I'm going to make your life miserable. You'll never amount to a hill of beans. (laughs) And somehow that's what we think about God. 
No. No, Jeremiah says he's kind and he's just and he's loving and he's patient and he's looking for the best for you. So just fix on him. Center on him. Serve him. Love him. And live out his life right where you are. And God will see to it that you get to the right place at the right time to do the right thing, to meet the right people, to influence the right lives. You may never be known in this world. Who cares? That's what Paul says. It's not man who, rec- who commends us anyway. It's God's commendation that we live for. We need to play the game out for him. Just keep running in the lane that he's assigned to us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. If you're like me, every once in a while you, you just get overhauled by a sense of discontent. And you get restless and unhappy about the, your, your state, your circumstances. And I'm sure there are people here this morning that are chafing under, a, uh, under that uh, pressure, feeling that they didn't want to come to Idaho in the first place, and they're here through no decision of their own, and this whole thing is foisted on them, and, and they're restless and unhappy and discontented and others who may be without partners and, and you're feeling that, that God has dealt you a, a bad hand and, and you're restless and uncomfortable in that. And others who have children that are difficult to manage and, and you're feeling that it's just not fair of God to impose that kind of burden on you with all the other pressures that you have or men that are restless in their jobs because they're not able to use their gifts and skills and they're working at some menial, dehumanizing task that takes all the, the life out of them. You and I need to confess that for what it is. It's sin. It's being discontented with God. It's an unwillingness to rest in his will for us and know that he loves us and have, has the best for us. And then recommit your life to get to know him, as the Apostle Paul put it. The goal of his life, the goal beyond all goals, the purpose for which every purpose in his life existed was to know, uh, to know the Lord Jesus and to be made conformable, conformable to his death. Would you ask the Lord to give you that focus in life? Lord, we do thank you that, you that you love us and that you have a plan for us. We know that your will is good and that it's all designed for, the, for our good and for the good of those around us. Deliver us from our discontent, our unsatisfied state. Help us to rest in you, in your sovereign choice. We thank you that we, we have indwelling us the Lord himself who gives us all authority and who has given us a place of service. We want to use it for his sake, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.